0: Riker Morgan Publishing presents An Unabridged Recording of Sandbox A Reed Montgomery Short Story Written by Logan Riles Performed by Kyle Tate For every soldier of every country who has sacrificed and died during the war against terror, war was no home for you, but you were heroes anyway. July 2nd, 2014 Mud crumbled beneath soiled brown boots as the Marines dismounted the Humvee. Their rifles, suspended muzzle down from two-point slings, were battered and dirty. The lead Marine's head was wrapped in a dingy white bandage, and his helmet was missing. His breath hissed between dry and cracked lips, and his cheeks were streaked with trails of sweat, cutting through the dust. The angry blaze of the desert sun had finally descended over the horizon, but it was still hot as hell in Iraq. Like the breath of an oven, a faint wind blew off the packed dirt, whistling between tan DCU pants. There was no relief in this place, no shelter from the wrath of the arid landscape. Montgomery. One of the other Marines slammed the door of the Humvee and stepped forward, shoving a black plastic case into Reed's hand. The zip tie locking the case seemed absurdly ironic next to the wide crack and missing corner. A metal plate engraved in red letters read Top Secret USMC Intelligence Division. Reed accepted the case and jerked his head toward a row of weathered barracks sitting 50 yards away. Thanks, Turk. You guys get some rest. We'll refit at 0800. The two weary privates tossed casual salutes. Then turned and trudged toward the barracks, their shoulders slumped under the weight of torn rucksacks. Reed wiped dust off the case, then started toward a white double wide trailer. Marked only by a flagpole, the sandblasted trailer served as the headquarters for the small Marine outpost. With each step, aching pain shot up his right leg, reigniting the burning agony from the fragment of rock that tore through his pants two days prior. The RPG had hissed past his face with only millimeters to spare before detonating in a brick wall 40 yards away. It had sent a shower of clay shrapnel blasting toward him like a shotgun blast from hell. Not his finest moment. The Marine rifleman guarding the door to the command post stepped aside and delivered a smart salute. Reed returned the salute, then kicked the remaining mud off his boots before mounting the steps and opening the door. The interior of the trailer was dim, illuminated only by a single light bulb that glowed from the top of a shadeless lamp. Haze hung in the air from a war's worth of cigarettes, and everything smelled stale, as though fresh air were as distant a memory as peace for this place. Desks lined the walls, laden with dusty computers and outdated telephones, and a lone lieutenant sat in a corner reading a magazine. A cigarette dangled between his fingers, and a trail of smoke rose from its amber tip. He didn't bother to look up when Reed stepped through the door. Welcome back, Montgomery. You looking for the major? Reed nodded and jerked his head toward the case. Yeah, need to debrief. The lieutenant looked back at his magazine and took a puff of the cigarette. Have to wait until 0600. He turned in for the night. Reed wiped dirt from his face then tossed the case onto the nearest desk. Go wake him. This can't wait until 0600. The lieutenant's dark eyes flashed over the top of his magazine, and the room fell deathly quiet. He dropped the cigarette into an ashtray and stood up. Excuse me, Corporal? I believe I give the orders around here. Reed sighed and ran a hand through his short, sweaty hair. It crumbled beneath his fingers, as bits of dust and dried blood flaked off and rained onto the floor. My apologies, sir. Would you please ring up the major? The lieutenant ignored the request and motioned to the case with a thick index finger. What's in the box? I'm sorry, you don't have clearance for that. The lieutenant flexed his shoulders and then snapped his eyes and finger toward Reed. You listen to me, Corporal. You Force Recon boys are out of your depth up here. I'm the ranking officer on site, and I have a right to know. That'll be all, Lieutenant. The gruff voice dominated the small trailer, drowning out the lieutenant's nasal whine. Both Marines snapped to attention and saluted as a short, black-haired man with bulging muscles walked down the hallway. He wore camo pants and boots, but no shirt, and dog tags dangled over his muscular chest. Silence hung in the small room like the haze of cigarette smoke. Major Polk stomped past the lieutenant and jerked his thumb at the door. Report to the motor pool. Four Humvees just turned in and need refitting. Get it done. We'll discuss your conduct at 0530. That is all. The lieutenant saluted, but Reed caught his glare as he shoved past him and exited the trailer. Reed remained at attention. Polk sat down at a desk and reached into a mini-fridge next to the wall. He selected a Coca-Cola in a glass bottle and popped the top off against the edge of the desk. A thin vapor rose from the mouth of the bottle before he tipped it back and took a long pull of the brown soda. All right, Corporal, at ease. Reed relaxed his shoulders, but remained alert. The Major eyed him for a moment while taking another sip, then motioned to the case. What have you got? Photographs and two video recordings, sir. We tracked Al Mahor's splinter cell 48 miles northwest, then lost them in the dark. Evidence suggests ISIL is operating a training camp someplace east of the Syrian border. Polk nodded slowly. Any intel on force strength? Impossible to say, sir. Their forces are still fragmented, but appear to be closing together. Polk grunted and rubbed his lip with a dirty forefinger. Reed twisted his aching feet inside the suffocating boots. His ears still rang from the firefight on the way back. Twenty miles from base, his team encountered a splinter cell of ISIL recruits, maybe eight of them. The exchange was short, resulting in a decidedly unfavorable outcome for the nationals. But between the RPG and the thunder of AK-47s, it still felt like World War III. Would you like me to open the case, Major? Polk grunted. Negative. That can wait. Your men must be exhausted. How long were you out? 52 hours, sir. Time for some shut-eye. Polk set the empty bottle on the desk. Head back to barracks and turn in for the night. Report here at 0700. I'm pulling you off recon for a few days. There's a shipment of diesel we need to move to Baghdad. It's a flashpoint job, but it's gonna cross through a suspected red zone. I want some marines on deck to provide additional firepower. Your fire team will take command. Reed felt his shoulders tense, and he clenched his jaw to resist cursing. His men were exhausted and needed a lot more than eight hours of sleep before hitting the road on a mission that was certain to result in more gunfights. Being assigned a babysitting mission involving a convoy of fuel tankers and a crew of half-assed mercenaries, was icing on the cake. Flashpoint security services established operations in the Middle East before the smoke cleared over the World Trade Center and quickly developed a reputation for supplying violent, unruly, and sometimes reckless personnel. It was an unfortunate reality of war that there were some jobs the U.S. military simply couldn't leave fingerprints on. Reed snapped his dirty boots together and saluted. Understood, sir. Dust rose in gentle clouds from the worn tires of the convoy. It was barely eight in the morning, but already the Iraqi sun blazed on the desert with all the wrath of an ISIL suicide bomber, beating down on the column of American vehicles with vengeance. Heading the column were two gunmetal gray Humvees loaded with flashpoint riflemen, followed by two tankers loaded with diesel fuel, all driven by Marines. A third Humvee, this one desert tan and loaded with four Marine riflemen, Trailed the tankers. Reed's USMC issued Humvee rode to the right side, leapfrogging between the front and rear of the column, as the fire team of Force Recon Marines inside maintained constant 360 degree surveillance of the convoy. Reed sat in the front passenger seat with a Mark 12 special purpose rifle cradled between his knees. The weapon was worn and dusty, but the internals were perfectly clean, polished, and ready for action. The remainder of his fire team rode in the back seat. Private Rufus Turk Turkman, from Knoxville, Tennessee. And Private Wes Johnson, from someplace in Idaho that Reed had never heard of. A potato farm, or some such thing. Johnson and Turk had completed over two dozen missions with him, since Reed was promoted to corporal and put in charge of his own fire team. They were hardened, heavy-hitting Marines, with a penchant for beer and bullshit between firefights the kind of men Reed found it easy to respect and depend on. The Humvee's driver was new. She wore dirty, ill-fitting DCUs, with a cap that was a little too large jammed over her ears. Sweaty brown hair poked at random from beneath, framing a white face and brown eyes. With each pothole and rut, the driver struggled to redirect the Humvee back into the middle of the road. Her pale knuckles gleamed under the blaze of the sun, contrasting against the dark steering wheel. He couldn't see her name badge and didn't recall being introduced to her. The morning had already blurred together. Reed pulled a cigarette from his pocket and stuck it between his lips. His tongue touched the comforting softness of the filter, and he sank his teeth into the paper. Just the act of holding the smoke in his mouth took the edge off his nerves. Where you from, Private? The driver shot him a sideways glance, then swerved to miss another pothole columbus sir columbus huh by that southern drawl i'm guessing you mean georgia and not ohio she nodded but didn't smile yes sir reed spat a piece of cigarette filter out the window do i look like an officer to you relax you'll drive straighter right of course her hands twisted around the wheel again the sleeve of her jacket slipped down a skinny arm Exposing burnt and peeling skin. Reed rolled the cigarette between his fingers and cocked his head. How long you been here, Private? O'Connor, and I got here yesterday. New to the corps. You could say that. I finished basic two months ago. Shit, hell of a first post. O'Connor almost smiled, but it was weak. Reed jammed the smoke back into his mouth and pulled a lighter from his pocket. He spoke through a relieving cloud of nicotine. You scared, O'Connor? Her shoulder blade stiffened. Hell no, Reed laughed. Well, you've got something figured out. I'm about to shit my pants. The two marines in the back seat laughed. Relax, Private. It's just another road trip through the sandbox. Keep us out of the ditch, and let's try to avoid any whiskey-tango-foxtrot stories. The confusion was obvious on O'Connor's strained features. Johnson laughed and slapped her on the arm. Whiskey-tango-foxtrot? What? The? Fuck. This time the smile was wide, and O'Connor laughed. Reed grinned, then adjusted the rifle over his knees. Why'd you join, O'Connor? The private didn't answer for a moment. She focused on the road, both hands clamped around the wheel at the ten and two positions. Then she shrugged, as if there were no point in not answering. I'm an art history major at Columbus State. I wanted to get an MFA in Atlanta. It's my dream to curate an antiquities museum one day. Reed smirked. So, you took an internship with Uncle Sam. O'Connor wiped sweat from her brow. School is expensive, Corporal. The GI Bill helps a lot. Reed laughed. You know, the Air Force is peddling the same deal, with a lot less sun and gunfire. My grandfather was in the Marines. I guess I just felt more familiar with him. And I don't like heights. Well, there's no judgment here. Reed leaned back in the seat. We all have our reasons. Turk has a weed habit to support, and Johnson's got like 14 kids or something. Johnson snorted, triplets, my wife's pregnant with triplets. O'Connor didn't hesitate, are they yours? Turk and Reed burst into laughter, and Johnson slapped the back of the driver's seat. What about you, O'Connor said, why are you here? Nicotine wafted over his tongue as Reed breathed out, still passing the cigarette between dirty fingers. He stared through the muddy windshield for a moment then knocked the ashes off the end of the smoke. Most jarheads wear the tags because they believe in something. The rest of us just need something to do. O'Connor frowned and tilted her head to one side. Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, Corporal. Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, O'Connor. Reed leaned back and sucked in another cool blast of smoke. O'Connor shifted in her seat and placed one hand on the M16 rifle mounted next to her right knee. The ashen hulk of a burned-out pickup truck loomed up the road. A trail of gray smoke wisped from the empty cab, and a charred skeleton leaned behind the blackened steering wheel. The life and laughter from only a moment before died inside the Humvee, like the last breath of a drowning man. Reed flipped the cigarette through the window. Keep it on the road, O'Connor. We'll take care of the rest. July 3rd, 2014. The brutal midday sun, determined to burn the Marines out of Iraq, beat down on the Humvee. Sweat covered Reed's face and soaked the front of his DCU jacket. The extreme heat was just another part of life. A daily grind of dirt, shit food, hostile locals, and frequent firefights. The big overinflated tires of the Humvee bounced over the rocks and shallow potholes, sending shockwaves up Reed's spine and pounding his tailbone into a numb bruise. He tried to relax his body and roll with the punches. Private O'Connor was a shitty driver, but it was better than having to fool with it himself. Empty deserts surrounded the small villages. Dirt roads connected with the highway, and small trucks and vans occasionally passed the convoy. This was the part of Iraq the media always reported on, dry and arid, with almost no water, and no vegetation. Reed was used to the life-sucking wind that chapped his skin and sandblasted his clothes, but he wondered why anyone lived in a place like this. Certainly, his experience in Iraq was predisposed to be negative, with people shooting at him every other day. But even without the bullets, he failed to see the charm of a place so desolate and hot. It was altogether the polar opposite of Southern California, the convoy took Highway 22 from Al-Nuqib to Karbala, skirting just south of Razaza Lake. Everything north of the highway was assumed to now be overrun by ISIL fighters, moving like a red wave southeast toward Baghdad. ISIL forces had already overrun Fallujah, the battle-weary metropolis west of Baghdad that had suffered so much during the invasion of Iraq. With thousands of insurgents joining ISIL ranks every week, the pressure on Iraq's capital was mounting to unprecedented levels. Reed often found himself wondering why the Air Force didn't carpet bomb northwestern Iraq, leaving ISIL in chaos and wide open for Peshmerga forces from Kurdistan to sweep in and finish the job. Collateral damage. They can't risk CNN reporting about the children who died under U.S. bombs. The outskirts of Karbala, a mid-sized Iraqi city of 700,000 residents, rose on the horizon. The convoy cut straight through the middle of the city, turning along Highway 22 and working its way toward the northeastern side. Reed lifted the comm off the dash and held it close to his lips. Command lead to all vehicles. We're turning south on 84 to Al-Hala. We'll take Highway 1 to Baghdad. Copy that, command lead. Turning south. O'Connor frowned as she turned right, following the lead flashpoint Humvees through an intersection, Isn't that the wrong direction? Reed stared through the window across the quiet streets. No children played between the small houses. No dogs barked and chased the convoy. No trucks bustled back and forth across the streets. A few women dressed in heavy hijabs stood at the corners of the streets, watching the convoy through the narrow slits of their headwear. But no men, no boys. Reed pointed at a distant flagpole mounted on top of a building. What do you see, O'Connor? She held her hand up to block the sun. A flagpole? Yes, and no flag. They flew the Iraqi flag last week. What does that mean? Maybe nothing. Or maybe it means ISIL is closing in and the locals are bunkering down. We'll circle south through Al-Hala and avoid the northern part of the city. It's only a couple hours' delay. Karbala faded in the rearview mirrors as the convoy rumbled south along Highway 84 and into the Babylon province of Iraq. The land became less dry and the air more humid as they approached the Euphrates River, passing through fields of wheat and barley with a handful of goat pastures sprinkled in between. Twelve miles passed under the grinding tires before the city engulfed them. The atmosphere was a striking contradiction to that of Karbala. Laughing children and barking dogs bounded through the streets. Some of the locals waved, while others only stared. Reed slapped his hand against the roof of the Humvee and pointed forward. Take the lead. O'Connor stomped on the gas and swerved to the left, rushing to the front of the column along the narrow asphalt highway. Reed looked into the dusty rearview mirror and saw the other three Humvees and the two fuel trucks fall in behind them. 50 caliber machine guns mounted on swivels swung on the roofs of the two flashpoint Humvees. Men in gray fatigues and baseball hats stood behind the guns, their eyes shielded by thick sunglasses. Reed always laughed at the contractors who were too badass to wear helmets, but wouldn't be caught dead without their safety sunglasses. As O'Connor cut through the last corner and topped the hill, the Euphrates River glimmered into view, slicing through the city on its southbound path toward the Persian Gulf. The water sparkled under the sun like a silver snake, alive and pouring hope into the dry land. Reed hardly noticed the river or the children splashing in the shallows. His eyes were drawn immediately ahead, to the bridge that spanned the water and the clouds of black smoke that billowed from it. He snatched the comm from the dash again and barked into it, All vehicles halt. The convoy behind them ground to a slow stop, and Reed opened the door. His boots hit the hard pavement, and a fresh wave of heat beat down on his helmet. Turk followed him, carrying an M27 rifle. The big Tennessean wore dark sunglasses and chomped on gum, his tanned face shining with sweat. They walked down the hill and toward the bridge. As they closed in, Reed saw that the fire was the result of an overturned truck, a tanker of some kind. The entire bridge was engulfed in red-hot flames, consumed by the raging oil fire. Reed pressed his index finger against the trigger guard of his rifle, keeping his eyes fixed on the shitshow unraveling in front of them. A middle-aged man wearing dirty clothes ran toward them. He held out his hands, palms out, and shook his head emphatically. Reed raised the rifle. Stop where you are! The Iraqi slid to a stop 20 feet away and commenced a shouting. Reed spoke a few dozen words of Arabic, but couldn't understand the man what the hell is he saying? Turk shrugged, holding the rifle in low ready and surveying the scene around the truck. Dunno, I think it's Kurdish. The only word I caught was detour. Reed jerked his thumb downriver, deeper into the city. What about another bridge? I know there's another one. Turk grunted, then rattled off a string of broken Arabic while gesturing toward the city. The Kurd shook his head emphatically and shouted back, waving his hands. Turk spat in the dirt, then ground his shoe over the mess. He said something about a boat. I think a boat hit the pylon. That bridge is out too. Reed cursed and waved the muzzle of the rifle back toward the burning truck. Get that shit out of here! The Kurd continued to shout and wave his hands, and then turned and ran back to the truck. The two Marines watched for a moment before turning back toward the column. Before Reed reached his Humvee, One of the flashpoint contractors was already stomping his way up the convoy with an M4 carbine riding from a one-point sling and bouncing over a chest plate. His cheek bulged with a wad of chewing tobacco, and even behind the safety sunglasses, Reed could see the look of disgust and condescension radiating from his face. Why the hell have we stopped? Reed jerked his chin toward the rear of the convoy. Mount up, Commander. We're going back to Karbala. The contractor spat in the dirt. Like hell, we are. The plan was to circle south and head to Baghdad. I'm not taking my men that close to ISIL outposts. There's no other choice. Both bridges are down. If we put those trucks across them, they're likely to collapse. So we turn farther south, drive to Diwaniya, then turn north to Baghdad. Negative, Commander. We're already behind schedule. That will cost us another five or six hours. We're heading back to Karbala and taking Highway 9. Get back in your Humvee. The flashpoint commander leered at Reed, but didn't move. Reed took a step forward, his boots striking the dirt, inches from the contractor. You've only been in town a few weeks, he growled. I've been here three years, so let me clue your dumb ass in on something. The quickest way to get shipped back to the States in a body bag is to stand still. You wanna live? keep moving. The only edge we have out here is our ability to haul ass. Now get back in that Humvee and tell your gunner to keep his eyes sharp and his shit together. The contractor glared at Reed. His jaw popped as he ground his teeth into the tobacco. You're an arrogant little prick, you know that? Reed glared him down as he heard Turk step one foot closer behind him. The big Tennessean was a full three inches shorter than Reed, but no less impending. The M27 clicked against Turk's chest rig, and the hot air felt thick with tension. Finally, the operative turned back toward his Humvee. Reed watched him walk away, then turned to Turk. The private looked at him with a tired shake of his head. I know, Reed muttered. Keep your eye on him. Way ahead of you, Montgomery. Reed slid into the passenger seat of the Humvee and grunted at O'Connor. All right, here's the deal. We're routing back through Karbala. Whatever happens, don't stop driving. If we get into a firefight, your only job is to keep your foot on the gas. No matter what stands in front of this Humvee, you run it over. Understand? Perspiration ran down O'Connor's face, but she nodded and shifted into gear. Reed looked into the rearview mirror, then stuck his arm out the window and waved forward. Move out! O'Connor stepped on the gas, and the big motor roared. The convoy turned slowly around, inching its way back into line to head northwest again. They retraced their path back up Highway 84, reaching Karbala half an hour later. The city still felt deathly still, as though a depression were suffocating the life out of the old buildings. Reed waved O'Connor ahead, directing her to take point at the front of the column, The tires crunched against dirt and rocks as they maneuvered through the northeastern outskirts of Karbala. The roadway narrowed, with tall sandy brown buildings standing on either side of the highway. Tin-roofed awnings hung out over the doorways, and small alleys led off on either side. Chickens, goats, and children ran up and down between the houses and buildings, and adults bustled past, casting unfriendly and suspicious glares at the trucks. Reed kept his eyes on the rooftops, scanning them for any sign of an overwatch or firing position. It was impossible to shield themselves from every angle. There were just too many roofs and alleys. The Humvee rumbled on down the street. Reed directed O'Connor to take a turn to the right, and then half a mile farther on, another turn to the left. This street was narrower. It was lined on both sides with two-story buildings, leaving barely enough room on the left side of the trucks to allow an oncoming vehicle to squeeze past. Reed felt an eerie calm settle over the town around them. He rested his hand around the grip of the rifle, and he leaned forward, peering through the dirty glass. Johnson grunted behind him. Where are the children? Reed nodded. I know. O'Connor, take a- A burst of automatic gunfire tore the words from his mouth. Bullets slammed into the hood of the Humvee, ricocheting off the reinforced steel and striking the bulletproof windshield. The gunfire seemed to come from all around them, lighting up the narrow street like a fireworks show. Drive, Reed screamed, and slammed his left hand against O'Connor's shoulder. The private shoved her foot into the accelerator, and the Humvee leapt forward. The thunderous clap of the two fifty caliber machine guns opened up from the rear of the column, joined by the rattling hiss of small arms fire. Dust exploded from the ground on all sides. The Humvee lurched and bounced over potholes and obstructions, hurtling forward through the blind soup of dirt and smoke. Turk shoved the M27 out of the rear window and opened fire on the passing rooftops. The big gun shook and roared, melding with the lighter pop of Johnson's M4. Reed saw it first from a rooftop one block distant. A tan-clad figure standing at the corner of the building, a weapon held over his right shoulder, and a plume of gray smoke. RPG, he shouted, and grabbed O'Connor by the back of her neck before shoving her face forward below the window line. The rocket struck the Humvee directly in the front grill and detonated on impact. The vehicle was hurtled upward and back as shards of metal and engine parts exploded into the air. Reed's head struck the dash, and he scrambled to brace himself as the Humvee slammed into the wall of the nearest building. Debris rained down around them, mixed with bulletproof glass and Humvee parts. Reed sat in dazed confusion for a moment, and his ears rang. In a hellish swirl of smoke and chattering gunshots, the world wavered in front of him. The noises sounded distant now, as though they came from the other side of a giant fish tank. He blinked and shook O'Connor by the shoulder. Are you okay? She leaned back and looked at him. Her forehead bled from a wide cut, but she nodded and gave him the thumbs up. He patted her on the back and jerked his head toward the door behind him. His head began to clear, and he fumbled for his rifle and then kicked the door open. It swung back on shattered hinges, and Reed rolled out and scrambled to find cover behind the rear bumper. The entire front end of the Humvee was gone, blown to scrap by the rocket. The vehicle leaned forward, lying on its frame with smoke billowing from the burning oil on the ground. Turk and Johnson spilled out of the rear doors, followed by a pale-faced O'Connor, holding her M16. Gunshots continued to roar around them. Reed lifted the rifle to his shoulder and squinted through the scope, surveying the rooftops. He pressed the trigger, and the gun jerked in his hands. An insurgent toppled from a rooftop, his face reduced to a mashed mess of red. Montgomery, Turk shouted, we've got to get those trucks out of here. Reed looked back down the column. The entire convoy sat at a standstill, blocked by the lead Flashpoint Humvee. It burned from a gasoline fire in the engine bay, engulfing the vehicle in flames. The second gray Humvee behind it was twisted to one side, with the 50 caliber machine gun mounted on top, roaring at the rooftops. Both semi-trucks sat still in the narrow street. Flashpoint operatives took shelter behind them, returning fire from their M4 carbines. The windshield of the lead truck was shattered and blood dripped out of the door frame. O'Connor, Reed grabbed her shoulder and pulled her toward him. You good? I'm here. You're gonna drive that truck. We'll cover you. Don't stop for anyone. Hoorah. O'Connor's eyes strained under the smoke and heat. Her hand shook and she almost dropped the rifle, but she nodded. Hoorah, Corporal. Go. Reed yelled as he raised his rifle. The thunderous roar of Turk's M27 shook the ground. Dirt and concrete dust exploded from the rooftops. A rifleman standing in a nearby alley collapsed to the ground, his chest riddled with 30 caliber holes. Reed took cover behind the burning flashpoint Humvee and began to pick off the rooftop combatants, searching for any sign of another rocket launcher. Johnson knelt just behind him covering an alley that exposed their six o'clock. O'Connor sat behind the big wheel of the truck, and she waved her hand at Reed and shouted something. He jerked his head at the second flashpoint Humvee. Move on, move on. The vehicle lurched forward, circumventing its flaming twin and vanishing into the smoke. O'Connor's truck followed yards behind. It was too wide to squeeze around the burning wreckage, and the front bumper collided with the flames, shoving the shattered Humvee out of the way as O'Connor plowed her way through. The three Force Recon Marines made a dash for the safe side of the truck, running next to the moving vehicle and continuing to survey the rooftops. Reed turned back and jerked his head at the second truck and the small crowd of flashpoint operators that surrounded it. One man lay on the ground in a pool of red. Another cowered next to the cap of the truck, his arm wrapped in a battlefield sling. The Marine gunner in the tail Humvee lay dead, slumped over the swiveling weapon mounted to the roof. Let's go, Reed screamed. More gunfire rained down from the rooftops, and something landed on the ground next to Reed's boot. He kicked without looking, sending the object hurtling down an alley. A moment later, it detonated, sending shards of metal ripping through the air. Reed felt something slice his arm, and he cursed, falling back behind the lead truck. More combatants were swarming the parapets, brandishing AK-47s and an assortment of light machine guns. The air pounded like the inside of a drum, punctuated with the blaze of small arms fire and the eruption of grenades tossed by the operators on the ground. Turk fell in beside Reed, dropping the magazine on the heavy rifle. Smoke rose from the barrel, clouding around Turk's blackened face. I'm almost dry, Montgomery. If we don't haul out, we're gonna have another Fallujah on our hands. Reed flicked his head toward the truck. Get up there with O'Connor. I'll drop back with Johnson and put some fire onto these damn contractors. Turk nodded once, then broke into a run up the right side of the rolling truck. Reed hand-signaled Johnson to follow him, and they ran past the lead flashpoint Humvee and jumped onto the running boards of the second semi-truck. Reed yanked the passenger door open and piled in next to the driver. Step on it. The Marine's hands shook on the big steering wheel. I can't go any faster. She's blocking the way. He gestured toward the lead truck, which was crawling slowly through the piles of debris. O'Connor's truck jolted, then stopped between the buildings. Reed cursed and grabbed the radio. O'Connor, move your ass! The radio crackled, then Turk shouted back. We're blocked in, Reed. Point has gone down. Repeat, they're down. Reed flung the radio and shouted over the gunfire at the truck's driver. I'm headed to the front of the column. Once we're moving, don't stop for anything. The door squeaked as Reed shoved it open. Johnson knelt next to the truck, and blood streamed from his left forearm as he continued to fire into the rooftops. With me, Reed shouted. The two of them crouched low and dashed to the rear of O'Connor's stopped truck. Turk's gun jutted from the right window, providing cover for their advance. Reed motioned with one hand, and Johnson followed him around to the front of the truck. The lead flashpoint Humvee sat in the middle of the one-lane street, the front left corner on the ground. With his mouth hanging open, the gunner lay dead over the 50 cal swivel gun. The flashpoint commander and two of his remaining men knelt near the front tire of the Humvee and returned fire at the rooftops. Dirt and scraps of rock exploded around Reed and Johnson's feet as they ran to the rear, and joined the men on the sheltered side. Reed's heart thundered, and every part of his body felt alive with tension. Commander, get out of the way. You're blocking. A fresh blast of gunfire ripped across the roof of the Humvee. Reed crouched beside the vehicle and shielded his head. He couldn't hear Turk's gun anymore. We've got a flat, the commander shouted. We're patching it now. Reed spit out dirt. Everything around him felt blurred and distant and his ears rang as though he had just left an all-night rock concert. What the hell is wrong with you? He screamed. Leave it! He planted the butt of the rifle into his shoulder and swept the scope across the rooftop. He pressed the trigger once, twice, three times. A body fell from the rooftop, and two more fell out of sight behind the parapets. A brief break in the gunfire brought stillness to the street, broken a moment later by a cry of pain. One of the contractors was trapped beneath the axle of the Humvee. The front tire was gone, and the jack lay jammed under the running board. Johnson shouted and dashed forward, shoving his rifle under the Humvee and levering up against the weight. The operator on the ground writhed next to the vehicle as tears streamed his face and blood soaked his arm. New gunfire erupted from the rooftops. Get him out, the commander shouted. Reed shoved past him and fumbled with the jack, pulling it out of the narrow gap left by Johnson's efforts. He kicked the base plate back onto the Humvee and shoved down on the crank. Bullets struck the Humvee on the far side, sending metal raining over them as the vehicle slowly began to rise. Reed grabbed the private's shoulder. Johnson, get on that 50 cal. Johnson dropped his busted M4 and scrambled through the back door. Reed cranked on the jack and then the brap, brap brap of the heavy machine gun lit up the rooftops as Johnson unloaded on the buildings. The fallen operator rolled out from under the Humvee, dragging a bent and bleeding arm behind him. The flashpoint commander grabbed Reed by the shoulder and pulled him back, shouting, move over, we've got the tire. Reed's face flushed with fire as he looked back. Fall back, commander, we're leaving it. I'm not leaving this Humvee, you shithead. Clunk. Reed's heart stopped at the sound, and he looked up to see Johnson struggling with the charging handle of the machine gun. Smoke poured from the barrel, but the weapon wouldn't fire. Johnson, down. Reed pulled his rifle to his shoulder, switching his line of sight to the rooftops. Pop, pop, pop. Gunshots rang out from down the street, followed by two soft thuds from the roof of the Humvee. Johnson's dusty fatigues were suddenly awash in dark crimson, and with eyes full of pain, he looked down at Reed. The color faded from his cheeks, and he fell sideways over the roof. Johnson, no! Reed jumped to his feet, redirected the rifle down the street, and pressed the trigger. The weapon slammed into his shoulder as bullets struck home into one target after the next. Reed was vaguely aware of a flashpoint operator rolling a tire next to him and the sound of metal clanking on metal as the wheel was shoved into place. When his gun clicked back on empty, Reed dropped it and pulled the Beretta 9mm from his right side, opening fire on the buildings at random. Everything was red. The truck rolled to a halt just past the gate of the Army Depot. Smoke rose from under the hood, and brass casings and blood-coated shards of glass littered the floor. The lead truck was parked 50 feet away, Leaning to one side on a flat tire. The surviving Flashpoint Humvee ground to a halt between the two trucks. Reed shoved the door open and stumbled out. His head swam. Blood covered his uniform and dripped from the cuts on his right arm. The ground swayed under him as though he were standing on the deck of a sailboat. He heard the sound of boots thumping on the ground. The Flashpoint commander was stomping toward him, his face twisted into an angry snarl. You son of a bitch! I told you not to turn north. Reed cocked his fist back and slammed it full force into the commander's jaw. Flesh met flesh with a sickening crack and the commander stumbled back. Two of his operators dashed forward with raised fists, but before they could reach him, Reed jerked the beretta from his right thigh and shoved it into the commander's face. He placed his thumb against the hammer and cocked the weapon. Go ahead. Make this easy for me. The three men ground to a halt and the commander glowered down the barrel of the handgun. If you had left that Humvee like I told you, Johnson wouldn't be lying in the ICU fighting for his life right now. If you had done your fucking job, I wouldn't be staring at the shattered remains of three Marines. The parking lot fell quiet, and with his finger resting against the trigger, Reed stared into the cold eyes of the commander. He wanted so badly to pull it. He could see the explosion of blood, Feel the recoil of the weapon in his hand, and imagine the commander's features vanish under the impact. Instead, he holstered the pistol and shoved past the glowering operators. A group of army infantry approached from a nearby warehouse, led by a captain dressed in tan fatigues. Reed offered a quick salute. Two diesel trucks. They're all yours. The captain surveyed the bullet-ridden convoy, then turned to Reed. You lose anyone? Two drivers, one contractor. One of my riflemen was hit pretty bad. The captain gestured to Reed's shredded sleeve. Looks like you need some stitches. Reed shrugged. I'll get to it. The captain grunted and looked toward the knot of flashpoint operatives gathered around the nearest Humvee. Do we have a problem? Reed shook his head. Negative, sir. We're all good here. Good. Get cleaned up. We'll make room for you in depot barracks. Mess is in two hours. Reed saluted again, then continued toward the lead truck. O'Connor sat on the running board, her hair falling over her ears, as she washed the dirt off her face with a canteen of water. Her uniform was stained, and her fingers trembled as she tilted the canteen and took a long pull of clear water. You good, O'Connor? Her skin was still pale, and her eyes were bloodshot, but she nodded. I'm okay, just need a minute. Reed grunted and sat down on the running board. She handed him the canteen, and he took a deep swig. You did a hell of a job, he said. Wouldn't have made it without you. O'Connor didn't respond. Reed handed the canteen back and met her gaze. It's okay to be rattled. Everybody goes through it. She didn't answer. Don't try to rationalize it you'll drive yourself nuts. She looked up. I guess. It's just not what I thought it would be. I mean, I knew it would be bad. I just didn't think I'd die driving a gas truck. It's not all SEAL Team Six. Sometimes it's just as pointless as life back home. But that's the job. You do your job, and you get to go home. Focus on that. O'Connor nodded once and Reed stood up. They're putting us up in the depot barracks. Get yourself cleaned up, and make sure you don't miss mess. It's natural to not have an appetite, but you need the calories. Roger that, Corporal. Reed walked toward the barracks. Every part of his body hurt, and though he felt like he could sleep for days, he knew he wouldn't. A few stitches and a hot meal, and it would be time to gear up again. He would check on Johnson first, then find Turk and get refit. The next day, they would be headed back west. The mess hall was crowded and noisy, with the clatter of plastic plates on metal tables. Several army infantry huddled around the rows of tables, making room for the small crowd of dirty Marines that joined them. Reed sat down across from Turk, his plate piled with potatoes, hamburger steak, gravy, and canned corn, Turk's plate was piled even higher, and the big man chowed down as though it were his last meal. Reed scooped a forkful of potatoes into his mouth and surveyed the room. In the far corner, flashpoint operators sat around a table of their own, isolated from the rest of the crowd. That wasn't unusual. Contractors usually kept to themselves. Turk spoke through a mouthful of hamburger and gravy. I saw Johnson, he's sedated. No prognosis yet. Reed grunted. Yeah, I saw him just before dinner. Bullet cut his liver. It'll be touch and go for a while, but the doc is optimistic. The two of them were quiet, and when Reed looked at Turk, he traced the private's gaze toward the small crowd of operators. Turk had steel in his eyes, angry, blazing steel. Look away, Reed muttered, focusing back on his plate. Turk's fingers turned white around his fork as he stabbed it into his food. The plate rattled against the table, and Turk spoke through gritted teeth. If they had left that Humvee, it's a long way back to base, Turk. A lot could happen. Turk met his gaze, and the two Marines stared at each other in cold silence before returning to their plates. When Turk spoke again, his slow southern drawl overtook the anger in his voice. Johnson's a lucky bastard. Bet he'll get 100% disability. Probably be sipping tequila beside a swimming pool the rest of his life. Reed swallowed more corn and potatoes, then glanced around the mess hall again. Have you seen O'Connor? Turk shook his head. Negative. She good? Pretty shook up. She'll be fine. Turk paused over his plate, staring down at the mediocre food. Reed knew what was going through the private's tired mind memories of his own first firefight. The way it felt. The fear. The adrenaline. The thunder of gunfire. Turk grunted and commenced eating again. Reed guessed that was the only way to deal with it. Just keep going. O'Connor would learn, just like every Marine before her, that in time, everything becomes numb. You just keep marching. Reed finished the plate and slapped his chest until he belched. The food was such an undersold perk of service. He drained the last of his water and stood up. I'm headed back to the barracks. I need to strip my rifle and get refit on something to wear. Major Polk should be in touch this afternoon. Turk didn't look up, and Reed turned toward the door. As he did, something caught the corner of his eye. Five men sat around the flashpoint table now, all bent over their plates and huddled next to each other. He started to turn away again, but the fifth man held his gaze. He was shorter than the rest, and his uniform didn't quite fit. The sleeves were loose around his shoulders, and one boot was untied. As he leaned toward the others, his face twisted, with small features, olive skin, and a thick black beard. Facial hair wasn't uncommon for contractors, especially those who regularly worked infiltration jobs, But this man's beard was well trimmed. It almost looked sculpted. Turk, you know him? Reed asked. Turk followed his gaze. The big marine stared for a moment, then shook his head. No, but this place is crawling with contractors. He's probably from another squad. Reed grunted and popped his neck. He was so exhausted. A few hours of sleep couldn't take the strain out of him. Hey, Montgomery. There was a hint of concern in Turk's eyes. You good, man? You look rough. Reed swiped Turk's coffee, drained it, and then slammed it back on the table. Hell yeah. Never better. Darkness descended over Iraq, but the heat remained. Reed stood outside the barracks and smoked a cigarette. His hands trembled as he flicked gray ashes into the orange sand and he closed his eyes and breathed out, savoring the taste of the tobacco. Reed enjoyed his first smoke long before joining the Corps. He was 14 at the time, maybe 15. Ironically enough, his first taste of nicotine came long after his first drag of marijuana. In Southern California, weed was the smoke of choice. But Reed always preferred cigarettes. Not because they were legal, but because he enjoyed the effects more. Nicotine took the edge off without dampening his ability to remain self-aware. He could smoke a pack a day and still be sharp and focused. Pot mellowed him out too much. It injected shadows and illusions into his worn mind, inhibiting his ability to be the shadow himself. Another two drags, and Reed finished the cigarette. He stomped the butt into the sand and leaned against the wall, staring at the night sky. The bright lights of Baghdad only miles north Melted with the city smog to block out the stars. The Arabic sky wasn't much clearer than the greasy murk over L.A., but it didn't feel like home. Reed idly wondered how anyone could call a place like this home. He started to turn back toward the door, then reached into his pocket for another smoke. Screw it. Tomorrow's the 4th of July. I can stand an early celebration. The lighter sparked and a hot orange flame kindled the end of the cigarette. Reed sucked in a deep pull of the nicotine, then closed his eyes again. Corporal? O'Connor stood ten feet away to his right. She wore DCU pants and an undershirt with her dog tags dangling over her chest. O'Connor, Reed straightened and flicked his ashes from the end of his cigarette. What's up? I need to talk to you. What's on your mind? You get any sleep? O'Connor stepped closer. The dim light of the street lamps gleamed against her cheeks, and she looked like a ghost. Not here, Montgomery. Reed lowered the cigarette. Something in the private's eyes chilled him. It was cold, afraid. You should sit down. You look like hell. O'Connor grabbed his arm. I need to show you something. Look, private, you need to get checked out he pulled his arm free. You're rattled, I get it. Come with me, right now. Something in her eyes turned hard and manic, like those of a rabid, snarling dog. Reed dropped the smoke and ground his heel into the ashes. He stared at her a moment, then nodded. All right, show me. O'Connor led him around the end of the barracks and toward the motor pool. She walked slumped over, casting wary glances around the compound. A row of depot warehouses filled the middle section of the post, their perimeters dark and shadowy. O'Connor pulled Reed between two of the buildings and hurried into the darkness. He hesitated, but she beckoned him on. Hurry, we don't have long. On the far side of the warehouses sat another motor pool. Unlike the first, this one was little more than an open parking lot, crowded with damaged and worn Humvees, light trucks, and civilian vehicles captured from insurgents. On the far side of the lot, a row of shadow gray flashpoint vehicles blended into the darkness. O'Connor knelt behind a white Toyota and gestured toward the row of flashpoint trucks. Look. Reed stared into the darkness. The parking lot was calm, and there were no street lamps. A hot breeze blew in from the southwest, whistling ever so softly through the metal frame of a nearby truck. O'Connor's eyes were wide and dark, transfixed on the Humvee as perspiration dripped from the tip of her nose. Reed wondered how shaken she really was. It wasn't uncommon for Marines to crack under their first firefight. He'd watched plenty of men twice her size crumple like paper dolls after a brief exchange of fire with AK-wielding insurgents. He didn't judge O'Connor for her condition. She handled herself admirably under pressure. But now, she needed help. He laid his hand on her arm. O'Connor, you, she gritted her teeth and pointed, there. Reed followed her line of sight to one of the flashpoint Humvees parked against a chain link fence. The darkness and haze of the night hung too closely over the motor pool. And for a moment, he couldn't see anything. Then, a man dressed in shabby gray fatigues slipped between the vehicles O'Connor had pointed to. It was the same man Reed noticed at mess. Short, dark hair, with a thick black beard. Reed huddled between the Toyota and watched the figure approach the Humvee. Through the dim light, he thought he recognized the vehicle. The windshield was cracked, and black powder burns covered the metal. The gun turret on top of the Humvee was battered and bent, with mud drying on the edges. A few bullet holes penetrated the thinner portions of the body armor near the fenders, and dried blood clung to the doors. It was the Humvee from the convoy earlier that day, the one with a flat tire. Reed held his breath and watched the shadowy figure walk behind the vehicle and disappear from sight. From his angle, Reed couldn't make out the rear of the Humvee, but he thought he saw the edge of the hatch sticking up from behind the turret. A few seconds passed, and then the man reappeared. He carried a large backpack slung over one shoulder and an equally large duffel bag swung from his left arm. Stooped over, he disappeared into the maze of parked vehicles. O'Connor looked at Reed, and he saw a spark ignite as her cheeks flushed red. They're smuggling antiquities out of Iraq. Tablets, artwork, artifacts of all kinds. I watched them for half an hour, and I got a good look at what they had. It's why they wouldn't leave the Humvee today. They were smuggling a full load into Baghdad. Reed felt anger radiating from her entire posture. He remembered that familiar rage, not from his own experiences, but from the 50-odd privates he had encountered over the previous 18 months. They were full of piss and vinegar, and the sincere desire to make a difference. Reed stood and dusted off his knees. Come on, O'Connor, you're about to drop. Let's find you a hot meal and a bed. She jumped to her feet, and her lip curled in disgust. Are you kidding me? You're just gonna walk away? Reed sighed, reached into his pocket, and pulled out another cigarette. The flame of his lighter danced. You knew, didn't you? O'Connor said. He wasn't sure if she sounded more shocked or indignant. He shook his head. No, I didn't. But I've seen this type of thing a dozen times. Not just with the contractors. Uniforms get busted doing it too. Iraq is probably the largest unchecked black market on the planet. Drugs, weapons, antiquities, even human trafficking. We're in a war zone, O'Connor. I don't like it, but it comes with the territory. The private set her jaw. The glower was so dark, Reed almost cringed. Go to hell. You're just gonna stand by and watch it happen? Reed blew smoke between his teeth. Calm down, private. I never said that, but you've got to take it down a notch. There's politics going on around here that you haven't been around long enough to know about. You can't just stomp up to Garrison Command and report a crime. These contractors are fast and loose, and better than half of them are guilty of sin. But they're a close-knit group, and they've got dirt on everyone. I didn't come all the way around the planet and drag my ass through World War III to back down from a ring of thieving thugs. If you're not going to stop them, I will. Smoke hung in the air between them, and Reed sighed and finished the cigarette. He ground the butt into the dirt and looked into her dark, blazing eyes. She was on fire. He wondered how long it would last, how long before the heat and the hatred and the bullets tore through her idealistic view of the world and scarred her for life, just like everyone else. How long before she was as jaded and calloused as he was? Maybe, he thought, There wouldn't be a war if more people were like Private O'Connor. Of course, we're going to stop them. But first, you're going to sleep. Without evidence, we're nothing but a couple fools with our dicks in hand. Or, you know, whatever it is you do. O'Connor smirked. So, you're going to help me? Roger that. First thing in the morning. We'll do what we can to get something to pin him down and find out who all is involved. Then we'll report them to the right people. I know a few officers we can trust. But until I say otherwise, you keep this to yourself. You understand me? I'm serious. This isn't a war you can win if they strike first. O'Connor nodded slowly. Fair enough? Reed turned toward the barracks. Come on, I'm one smoke away from passing out. Independence Day, 2014 Montgomery, wake up, man. Reed blinked back the exhaustion and sat up. His mouth was dry and tasted like stale cigarette smoke. The barracks around him were flooded with bright sunlight from the narrow windows. It was already swelteringly hot. Turk stood next to the cot, dressed in tan fatigues, with the jacket unbuttoned over a brown undershirt. Freshen up, dude. We're due to debrief in 15. Reed pulled himself to his feet. He was sore but there was nothing unusual about that. In the small barracks bathhouse, he splashed his face with cold water, then pulled on a fresh uniform and laced his boots around dirty socks. As he stepped outside, his face was blasted with a fresh wave of sunlight gleaming off the metal roofs of the surrounding buildings. Engines roared as Humvees and trucks passed each other along the depot's streets. The hum and drum of military life ground away all around him. Reed buttoned his jacket, and found Turk waiting at the entrance to depot command. The big Marine looked tired, but he still stood straight and proud. The army infantrymen guarding the door stepped aside, and the two Marines ducked through the door. A welcome blast of icy cold air conditioning washed over them. The small building was crowded, but clean and orderly. Perks of command, Reed guessed. Led by a private through the maze of desks and small offices, to the garrison's commanding office at the far end of the hall. They were ushered directly in. A short, stocky man wearing an undershirt tucked into his pants sat behind the desk. His rank wasn't apparent, but both Reed and Turk snapped to attention and saluted. Reed cast a careful look around the room, and his eyes fell on a familiar face leaning against a wall. It was Commander Gould, the Flashpoint squad leader from the previous day. Their eyes locked, and Reed felt the muscles in his neck. Titan. He remembered the night before, kneeling in the sand at the motor pool with O'Connor. He remembered the whispered conference between Gould's men and the short man with a thick beard during mess. Reed had no doubt that Gould was guilty as sin, but now was not the time to deal with that. The officer stood and briefly returned the salute. At ease, gentlemen. I'm Colonel Wells, commanding officer for the depot. Reed and Turk both interlaced their fingers behind their backs, leaving their knees locked. All right. Wells sat back down and rubbed his eyes. He looked tired too. Well, nobody here has a lot of time for this, so we'll get straight to it. I need a full debrief on what happened yesterday, along with an assessment of enemy presence in Karbala. Reed cleared his throat, but Gould spoke first. Well, Colonel, it's pretty simple. Corporal Montgomery diverted us off the highway and through the slums of the city, exposing the column and my men to unnecessary levels of combative risk, which resulted in multiple deaths and several severe injuries. Wells raised his eyebrows at Reed. That true? Reed remained calm. I diverted the column due to an unanticipated obstruction in the highway. I believed it was a greater danger to the security of our cargo to remain stopped on the road than to take an alternate path. You believed, Gould snorted and rolled his eyes. And how did that work out, Corporal? Wells spoke before Reed could answer. Commander, you will not address a uniformed service member of any rank in that manner. You were here at the behest and payroll of the United States government, and as such, I am your boss. Your behavior should reflect as much. Do I make myself clear? Gould looked surprised, but he nodded. Of course, Colonel. Wells redirected his attention to Reed. Your decision to reroute could have been the intention of the enemy. Are you aware of that? Reed nodded once. Yes, sir. I made the best decision I could with the information available to me at the time. Wells nodded slowly. He took a few notes on a pad of paper, then snapped the cap back onto the pen. Okay. Well, the trucks are here. We'll record individual accounts of yesterday's events later today. For now... You're all dismissed. Reed and Turk saluted, and Gould straightened and nodded at the colonel. The three left the office and walked back out into the blistering Iraqi heat. Gould unfolded safety sunglasses from his breast pocket, slid them onto his face, and sneered at Reed. Happy Independence Day, Corporal. The contractor turned and walked toward the motor pool, his shoulders squared. Reed watched him go, then pulled a cigarette from his pocket. Have you seen O'Connor? Turk grunted. Not since last night. Finder, there's more going on with our friend over there than meets the eye. We're going to shut him down and button this up before he testifies. Turk's eyes narrowed. Reed handed him the cigarette, and Turk took a long draw before speaking. Be careful, Reed. You're already damn close to being cornered. Reed watched Gould fade into the distance just find O'Connor. I'm headed over to shipping. I'll explain later. Reed found Corporal Jules Hale at the accounting desk of the main depot shed. The building was massive, a thousand yards long and a couple hundred wide, packed with every manner of equipment designed to prosecute a war. Forklifts ran back and forth across the packed dirt, moving pallets of ammunition, medical supplies, food, tires, truck parts, and everything else the military needed to survive during an occupation. There was no air conditioning. The warehouse was as hot as the sun baked sand outside. Jules grinned and smacked Reed on the back, wrapping him in a quick one armed hug. My man! Back from the front lines! The hug felt tight and warm, the kind of thing Reed didn't feel often in this desolate war zone. Jules, I see you're still bean counting. You should have joined the Marines, dude. You'd have some balls by now. The Army Corporal grinned. He was born and raised in St. Louis, but everything about his rich ebony skin and strong features spoke to his Kenyan heritage. Taut muscles rippled beneath his shirt, and two rows of straight white teeth glistened in a wide smile. Jules was a rock, and a rock with a great sense of humor at that. Reed met him six months earlier on another mission and the two of them hit it off for no particular reason. Maybe it was because Jules made him laugh, or maybe it was because they shared similar satirical views of the war. Jules dug under his desk and produced a canteen of water. He cracked it open and took a sip, then passed it to Reed. Reed accepted it with a nod and enjoyed two gulps of lukewarm water. His throat still felt dry. So, what does the Corps need now, Montgomery? I'm fresh out of ribeyes. But I could spare a couple hundred mortars. Reed laughed and handed the canteen back. What about ancient Iraqi antiquities? The room fell silent, and Jules stood still for a moment, staring at Reed with piercing intensity. When he spoke again, his voice was calm and soft. What do you know? Flashpoint, they're smuggling artifacts in and out of Baghdad. Yep. Jules took another sip of water. I've thought so for weeks. You know how the contractors are, Reed. I do, which is why I'm inclined to leave well enough alone. I didn't fly around the planet just to fight other Americans. But? But I've got a private with me who is on fire to change the world, and she's gonna make waves. And to be honest, I owe them a black eye. One of my guys got shot up pretty bad. Might not make it. I need to know who we can trust. Jules recapped the canteen and set it on the desk. I wouldn't run it to garrison command. A little bird told me you got yourself in a firefight in Karbala, and there's talk that it might have been your fault. If you go to Wells without proof, it'll look like a half-assed attempt to deflect attention off yourself. So I need proof, or somebody who's impartial and will take me seriously. The proof will be easier to find, my suggestion is to hold your cards until you get back to base. Then talk to your commander. Get him to dispatch you on another run to Baghdad with the same flashpoint squad. Set him up. If they're working this depot, there's no way to know who's in bed with them. One wrong move and this will blow up in your face. Reed grunted and stared out into the bright horizon. Sweat streamed down his face and back. He needed a shower, he realized. And it was probably time to brief Turk. The two men shook hands, then Reed started toward the door. Roll easy, Army. Darkness closed over Iraq again. Reed debriefed with Colonel Wells, detailing the account of the ambush and the actions taken by all parties involved. The depot was busy setting up a barbecue and a fireworks display for the Army post later that night. Some high-ranking officers were in town, and festivities were in order. Reed found it ironic for an occupational force to celebrate a revolution, but Iraq was full of ironies that he long ago elected to ignore. As the sun faded and the base became lit with streetlights again, Reed left the barracks in search of Turk. He hadn't seen the big marine since earlier that day, although he knew he must have debriefed with Wells at some point. Reed needed to discuss the situation with Turk and strategize on a way to cool O'Connor down. The narrow streets were a lot more crowded now. Army infantry in full uniform bustled back and forth. Trucks rumbled between the metal buildings, and people shouted orders. It was yet another irony that the base seemed so much more alive after dark. But maybe that was because the demon god of the sun had finally relented. Reed pushed through the crowd, locating a small knot of Marines standing outside the mess hall. Among them, he made out Turk's bulky frame. Hey, Montgomery, I've been looking for you. Reed tilted his head toward the command building. You debrief? Yeah, a few hours ago. Did you ever find O'Connor? Turk shook his head. No, I've been asking around. Nobody's seen her since this morning. She left her barracks at 06:30. Somebody said they saw her headed toward the motor pool. The motor pool? Which one? Turk shrugged. There's more than one? She didn't debrief with Wells? No, just me, you, Johnson, and Flashpoint. Wait, they interviewed Johnson, but not O'Connor? The best they could. He's still heavily sedated. Reed scanned the busy compound. A sick feeling boiled up in his stomach. Did you get a look at the summary report? Um, I guess. Briefly. How many casualties did it report? Turk rubbed the back of his neck um five I think Reed gritted his teeth Johnson was wounded two drivers and one flashpoint operator were KIA who was number five I don't know man I didn't really think about it where's flashpoint now have you seen them not since this morning look man what's going on you're acting all squirrely Shouts from the bustling base drowned out Turk's voice as Reed pushed through the crowd and worked his way toward the motor pool that he and O'Connor had visited the night before. Even with the bright lights of the event space behind him, the motor pool was blanketed in shadows. Reed pulled a small LED light from his pocket and clicked it on, pushing between the parked trucks and trailers and toward the back of the lot. The noise of the crowd faded behind him and he traced the outline of boot prints in the sand leading to the parked Humvee at the rear of the lot. It was the same vehicle, filthy with dirt and dried blood, that he and O'Connor had watched the night before. The LED illuminated the ground behind the Humvee, revealing a myriad of boot prints of all sizes. As he worked his way to the rear hatch, he found it unlocked and lifted the heavy door. The cargo space in the rear of the Humvee was empty, save for a short coil of rope and a couple empty fuel cans. Reed shone the light back onto the ground, studying the patterns in the sand. The boot prints were muddled, stacked on top of each other, between scrapes and disturbances in the dirt. It looked like some kind of scuffle. He shone the light into the tangle of piled boxes, empty shipping containers, and dented drums that were strewn around the back of the motor pool behind the parked Humvee. His gaze paused over the corner of a metal shipping crate and a piece of dusty tan fabric clinging to it. Ten feet farther on, a splash of red stained the sand between more boot prints. Reed put his hand on his Beretta and hurried between the abandoned debris, walking into the darkness. The voices from the crowd were dim now, drowned out by the howling desert breeze blowing in from the southeast. Sand skipped over itself on the ground, already washing away the boot prints and covering the bloodstains on the ground. He hurried between the crates, and then he turned the corner and stopped. The breath caught in his throat. His head went light, and his stomach flipped. He snatched the pistol from his belt and held it at eye level, surveying the space around him and searching behind the barrels, boxes, and shipping containers. The wind stung his eyes, and he blinked back a sudden blur as he looked down. O'Connor lay on the ground, her arms and legs splayed over the sand. Her clothes were ripped and torn, leaving her pale skin fully exposed under the dark night sky. Her eyes, wide with terror, were frozen open above a neck that was black with bruises. Her skin was a mess of crisscrossing slashes, and more bruises covered her breasts and stomach. She lay lifeless and cold, facing the desert sky. Reed coughed and stepped back with a sudden urge to vomit. He leaned against a crate and closed his eyes, forcing himself to breathe evenly. His hand shook against the edge of the crate, and he drove his fist into the metal. Once again, the sand under his feet felt like the tipping deck of a boat, causing him to stumble and catch himself against an upturned barrel. Nobody heard the commotion. In the distance, the sound of voices and music echoed from the barbecue. The wind whistled amid the junkyard. Everything else was lifeless. Reed turned back to O'Connor's body, and forced himself to kneel beside her. He pulled her torn jacket from beneath her body and laid it over her chest. For a moment, he didn't move. He just stared at the covered body. Her vacant eyes, hollow like empty graves, were fixed on the sky. There was no more fear in those eyes. No panic. Just darkness. Adrenaline surged through his blood, and he broke into a run through the junkyard, back through the motor pool, past the warehouses, and into the crowd. He worked his way through the throng of army infantrymen, officers, and marines, and brushed past a captain without looking up. He shoved his way free of the crowd as brass horns blared and somebody broke into an amplified solo of the national anthem. Reed crashed through the door to his barracks. The room was dark and melded with shadows and flashing lights from the party outside. He opened the footlocker, pulled out his rifle, and checked the breach for obstructions or debris. Two magazines loaded with copper-tipped cartridges lay in the bottom of the locker. The receiver of the weapon clicked, as Reed slammed a magazine into place, then checked the optic to make sure the glass was clear. The weapon felt heavy in his hands, but in a familiar way, like an axe to a lumberjack, or a gavel to a judge. His weapon of choice, a ruthless, unstoppable force of judgment. The lid of the locker slammed shut, and Reed turned around to see Turk standing in the doorframe, blocking the way. Go back to the party, Turk. You haven't seen me since this morning. Turk shook his head. Don't do it, Reed. Whatever happened, whatever you know, you can't come back from this. Reed laid his hand on Turk's shoulder and gripped it, before stepping past his friend. Neither can she. As Reed walked toward the flashpoint barracks, fireworks whistled into the sky, detonating with thunderous booms. Sparkling fire rained down, and blue and red lights glimmered off the smooth black barrel of the rifle. Reed positioned the weapon into his shoulder and flipped off the safety. This has been Sandbox, a Reed Montgomery short story by Logan Riles, performed by Kyle Tate. The executive producer is Eric West. Copyright 2019 and production copyright 2020 by Logan Riles. The story continues with Overwatch, book one of the Reed Montgomery series. Find out how you can read Overwatch for free by visiting loganryles.com podcast. Thanks for listening.